Welcome to Verbal Art, a podcast where we talk about artsy stuff in different locations. Sometimes there are certain people who sit next to you during performances, who see things on stage you are not capable of noticing. Not because you are less vigilant, but because you are less involved. They have planned the stage. They have built the stage. They anticipate possible errors and try to fix the emergent ones during the performance or avoid them for the upcoming performances. You might not notice these errors. Then there are those you don't see because they are either somewhere above, below, on the sides or behind the stage. Turning knobs, bringing light, bringing sound, playing images, sowing clouds, instigating movement, creating wind, enabling time travel. They are the meteorologists of the stage. They realize the vision of the autistic team with their bare hands and by craftily operating machines. Ultimately, they are there to create the theater magic that transcends the audience through time and space. They are the magicians. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, we are recording. Uh, welcome to Verbal Art. Uh with me, Senja Ram, and it's this podcast where I interview people about their creative jobs and uh, we talk about where we are talking about it. Today we are in Studio Pasila, which is a theatre, here with uh, Fjola Hodja. Um, and we are going to talk about this uh, conceptual theater performance called what is seen and what's left behind the scene question yeah. mark <laughs> um so hi fiola hey it's enya not senya or it, almost you don't say x right senya senya okay yeah <laughs> okay because i was thinking like uh, in albanian which is my mother tongue i would say senya but then senya yeah oh, but i'm so happy because usually <laughs> it's me pronouncing everyone's names wrong and like double checking with them before we start recording and then once we are recording my tongue just does something else and people are like okay oh, sure or... okay that's your interpretation <laughs> of my of my name no you, you pronounced my name pretty good and uh, it's lovely that uh, you grew up with this uh was it cartoon you said with a hoja no yeah okay so we just talked before before um, before we started, because I always check with people how to pronounce their names, and so uh, your last name Hoxha is not spelled Hoxha, right? It's spelled H O X H A. Exactly. So, like, I would pronounce that very differently if I didn't can you know. Can you do it? Hoxha. Hoxha. Okay. Yeah, yeah I yeah. would do that. So, but then you say it's Hoxha, and then I was like, oh, when I grew up, there was this Danish children's movie. It was not a cartoon. It okay, was one movie. With people um, from the. 70s or 80s mm-hmm. called Hodja from Pjord and Pjord I guess was I don't know if it's a real city or if it was a make-believe Arab city but it's basically like Aladdin without the cave <laughs> Aladdin but like this child find gets this like carpet from some grandpa or something and then the carpet can fly and then there's all this 
there was a whole cute song about and he yeah. frees the princess or something and you know and i don't know probably in this day and age it would be seen as problematic to make like yeah. a danish arab <laughs> children's movie but but you know back then it was nice yeah yeah also like it's a bit exotic exoticizing but yeah. it is but i don't know like it's I can't remember when it's from, but it's the 90s at the latest, like early 90s. Maybe it's an 80s movie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, exoticizing was very allowed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But we, we discussed it basically like to give some kind of context to the listeners that yes. uh, Hoja <laughs> uh, is my, my, my surname means uh, Imam. And I was just explaining to Senya that... Um, my grandfather was an atheist, but I got the surname from my father's grand, like father, so that grandfather, and apparently his grandfather was uh, an imam. So it's funny that, uh, yeah, I inherit this surname, and uh, also the very uh, infamous uh, Albanian dictator, Enver Hoxha, has <laughs> the same surname, but people are named based on some kind of uh, yeah, professions in the family. And then, anyway, enough about the Hoxhas. Uh, we went on tangents, but yeah. But but you're not from Albania, you're from... No, I'm from Kosovo. Or as I say it, Kosova, because that's how I pronounce it in my uh, native Albanian. But I'm Albanian <laughs> from Kosovo. And Kosovo is quite multicultural, um, luckily... Uh, despite all the kind of atrocities that happened, it's uh, in its flag it has six stars, which are supposed to represent all the communities living in it. But there's more, so uh, yeah, it, it really strives to be this multi-cultural, uh, multi-ethnical, and uh, what is the non-kind of dominant religious? Although Islam is the most dominant religion, it's kind of uh, like by constitution is non religious okay yes so i'm from there from kosovo um and now you live in helsinki yeah i live between helsinki and nashville tennessee uh yes which is where i will be spending more time uh starting uh end of the summer or midsummer actually uh yeah and uh Looking for prospects there, uh, looking for my partners in Hels- in uh, Nashville. So that's the reason why I, um, I'm going to be there longer. And uh, yeah, I'm just looking for possibilities to start a PhD and whatnot. We'll see. Okay. But so between, it's like the last five years, it's been Helsinki and Nashville. And Kosovo. And Kosovo, but yeah, 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 Kosovo too, because yeah, I worked there last year also. So and because we always sometimes go home to visit, also, right? Yeah, no, I'm pretty regular. Uh, I'm pretty attached with my my family, and uh, yeah, five months, six months is the most that I can endure. I mean, I've gotten used to because I feel really kind of torn about this long distance flights uh, to the US, ecologically speaking. It's a long travel. Which is why I spend a lot of time there once I'm there. And uh, then uh, I feel less bad about all the carbon dioxide that uh, is emitted because of me. But but, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty pretty attached to my family and like uh, I prefer seeing them at least twice a year. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, but all of them, my parents and my brothers, 
uh, they live in in Kosovo. Mm. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about where we are because mm. um, so this is um, a theater called Studio Pasila. Um, can you help describe the room? Yeah, I think the most characteristic uh, thing about this stage is that it has this very dominant uh, velvet-purple-ish looking seats. Which is not actually velvet, right? No, they're right. not velvet, it's but kind of... cheaper. We are seated on the stage also for the reference. We're we are sitting in the middle of the stage. Yes. Yeah, we're alone here. Yeah. And I liked how in the headformance piece that uh, I experienced here that we will talk about, the the stage manager says like it's a small theater and then I <laughs> and then I counted the seats and I was like it's a three hundred seat yes. space. I wouldn't call this super small. No. It's not a big theater. Yeah. But it's like, it's middle-sized. Right, exactly, I agree. And uh, I, I've had the same kind of question myself. But then when I saw the main stage of the city theater, I understood comparatively why they're saying the small stage. Mm. I'm also like, the reference for me a small of a small stage is maximum 100 seats. Like mm. very intimate, maybe even 50 or 40. But 328 is, that my, is yeah, the yeah. exact number. And um, it's pretty pretty large theater. And, uh, and everything in here is black except for these this like a uh, red wine colored on yes. the seats and uh, and then there are like there's like uh, it feels like there's stars above us but it's just lamps from the ceiling yeah and there's a lot of lights and uh, at parts of the performance more lights are lit so that uh, the uh, participants which I kind of prefer calling instead of audience uh, so that they can see the bridges uh, mm -hmm. where the stage manager sits and uh, does his job like a fly in the ceiling <laughs> that no one notices but yeah it's a uh, one of the stages of the five that um, city theater uses this one is uh, used to be the the children's theater, uh, and then Intimitatteri beforehand, and then it merged with um, uh, the legislation or the institution of city theater uh, uh, in 19... Uh, no, sorry, sorry, 2005. And uh, it's one of their stages. I think it's very interesting because it's like in this neighborhood that's... Uh, very industrial or almost now post-industrial, very concrete-based and uh, very interesting in terms of like how the architecture is kind of connected with bridges and there's a lot of construction in this neighborhood always. Well, always in Helsinki these <laughs> yeah. years. But yeah, you are right, Pasila is a little bit of a special area. Mm -hmm. It's uh, people, um, like photographic tourists come here to photograph all this uh, brutalism architecture mm. here, which is, um, there are no real ghettos in Helsinki, but this mm. feels a little bit ghettoish in the area. But and when it was built, it was very prominent. And mm. um, But it's very, like people who like concrete and all this like brutal architecture style, they really like this area. Yeah. And a lot of other people think it's outdated and... yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very complex kind of uh, complex feelings about it. Um, I just 
tried to like during making the the performance because the performance is so much about or the way that I work also is so much related to the situation uh, or being situated uh, rather uh, I did some exploring of the space of the area and uh, I find it kind of interesting how for example these graffiti uh, that sort of show a bit urban underground are merged with this kind of um, brutalist architecture and then then you have this tripla mall which is a giant uh, shopping mall which is very new very new and uh, the telia office has its kind of base here like the the main office of telia which is the telephone one of the telephone operators then it's this uh, cultural um, sort of venue uh, i'm not sure if it's exactly cultural but the mesukeskus I have to check. It's like uh, for fairs. And, yes, and stuff yes. Like this, like this uh, fair arena. Yeah. I don't know how to and, uh, mess the hole. And then there's this kind of Helsinki Halle, which used to be called something else. Uh, but then it turned into Helsinki Halle because the previous name was associated with an oligarch, that uh, Russian oligarch that um, was supporting the Russian war in Ukraine. So mm. at this moment... Uh, the that venue is not used, but it's like a hockey concert hall. But all of this kind of became a part of the performance so that the audience, or I will call them the participants from now on, because it's a participatory performance, so that they could get a sense of being situated in the space. Let's pin you down. You are in the northwestern neighborhood of Helsinki, We are situated in eastern Basila, previously dominated by small industry and warehouses, nowadays a mixed-used area of offices, flats and commercial spaces. You are in the neighbourhood that hosts the second busiest railway station in Finland. About 130,000 people move through the neighbourhood per day via 900 trains, 400 trams and 850 buses. Yeah, and so let's help situate our listeners now mm. into what we are actually talking about. Because we are here in this theatre and then we are talking about the mm. city outside. Right. Uh, so your theatre performance is not actually a theatre performance in the way that there mm. are no actors. Uh, mm. There is audience, which we now will call participants, wearing headphones right. and walking around the theatre uh, in all these places where you're not allowed to normally walk. Right. Um, so can you just summarize mm -hmm. the, the thing for sure. the listeners? So um, this performance called What is Seen and What's Left Behind the Scene is uh, pretty much interested in uh, exploring the stories of the technical workers or the technical staff, which usually is a permanent staff at the theater, and uh, are the people who kind of collaborate into the making of every theater piece, every performance, uh, but they're not visible because their job's somehow, somewhere behind the stage or at the kind of uh, bridges which are four meters up from the theater in this stage or uh, at the light and sound booth. Um, this is my sort of maybe we can talk later about the conceptual part then i will just focus on what happens now mm -hmm. so um 
the performance is a sound performance uh, that uh, I would maybe describe it has three levels. Uh, the first level of it is uh, happens at the lobby of the theater where the participants uh, are introduced to the technicalities of how this will work and everyone is given headphones and then the rest of the kind of performance happens through their ears. So it's a walking performance. There's a lot of movement on the backstage and on certain areas, which you nicely said that are normally not allowed to go to when you make a theater, like when you go to the theater. Um, and uh, it starts with um, sort of... Um, this pinpointing the performer regarding the surroundings. So the fact that we are in Pasila sort of informs the performance and um, informs maybe my approach to um, this visibility and invisibility uh, concept because a lot of times I think that we don't pay attention much to what is happening around us or like when you when we're walking around the the, the I don't know uh, the neighborhood like I find it very important how the surroundings affect the person mm. and uh, so I wanted to in a way include the surroundings uh, also as, as a form of maybe making sense of uh, our presence in space like generally um, and this comes pretty much from a very strong influence from human geography as a kind of uh, uh, field of study, and uh, which are very like their theories are very interesting for me because basically in the root they say the space that we inhabit or uh, are around influences us as much as we influence the space so we co-create each other mm. and that's why space is always very important in, in my later works um, then from the lobby we move down to the foyer can uh, I just like yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. shoot something in here and yeah. you are also anchoring the participants in time in mm -hmm. this uh, first part because True. In at that point while we are still in the lobby space we we get all these like uh, history facts that's about... in the in the foyer ah it's not in the same no no place. it's the ah. hi the time level goes down in oh, the foyer <laughs> yeah okay so i considered that to be the first no the, uh... the space is up the time is in the foyer and yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> so basically uh the audience gets a little bit of historical tour uh through i mean yeah let's call this a tour it's a tour through history of uh, Finnish theater and through Studio Pasila and kind of a bit virtually also through the neighborhood of Pasila. The formation of the Finnish theater in Finland arises from the citizens and popular movements during the second half of the 19th century. The language of art and culture before that was Swedish. <laughs> Back then, the working class perceived the theatre houses of the time as institutions of the bourgeoisie in which they were not represented and didn't have a role of their own. So, they voluntarily created their own theatres, their people's houses. <laughs> Hevonen polkasi rauallansa, hevonen huiskasi hännällänsä, 
The repertoire of the workers' houses was focused on entertainment and social commentary through music, romance, comedy and farce. Despite initial efforts for an inclusive and equalizing theatre policy during the 1930s, the workers' theatres suffered a temporary closure. The white government was suspicious and afraid of the workers' theatres' potential, who were already drowsy by the hard kick of the economic recession. A series of mergers started to occur. Finalized by the formation of Helsingin kansanteatteri työväenteatteri, Helsingin Workers and People's Theatre in 1948. At their core, the mergers always had an economical background. Their goal was to sustain through unification, while intending to keep their own line of ideas within the circumstances. With the growing trust in the promise of equal citizenship, the workers' unions of Finland passed on their own art institutions in favor of municipal theaters, but they did not cease to be central part of these new formations. Kansanteatteri, työväenteatteri, Helsinki Workers and People's Theater turns into Helsingin kaupunginteatteri in 1965. Through new mergers during the 2000s, besides its main and small stage, Helsinki City Theatre has expanded its activities to Studio Pasila in 2001 and the Swedish-speaking Lilla Teatern in 2005. Since 2010, Helsinki City Theatre has also used the Arena stage in Hämeentie as one of its venues. Uh, yeah, in the foyer there is a, an introduction to the history of um, the formation of the Finnish theatre. Um, and I was looking at this or interested in sharing this because through researching how city theatre has been kind of what is the background of city theatre in, in, in Helsinki, this one of the stage of which we are sitting in, uh, Tracing back, I found that this city theater is very directly linked to the formation of the theater culture in Finland generally, and it leads to the workers' movements in Finland. Yeah, because this whole like city theater concept is a particular thing. Um, yes. And I will ask for the... Uh, sound part of this mm-hmm. performance later so I can put in bits uh, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. selected points of the podcast so the listeners also can get a little bit of an idea of of how I was introduced to this mm. because I didn't know any of this mm. um, Helsinki City Theatre as, as a political movement or a mm-hmm. cultural political like history yeah. thing yeah yeah um uh, Apparently, because also like this is a new culture for me, and then maybe if I don't forget, I can talk a little bit about like how it feels to approach a culture that I didn't grow up in uh, externally and how to understand it. Uh, but um, initially, the in the 19th century, so basically towards the end of the imperialist kind of presences in Finland or before the actual country was kind of independent, the the language of theater was, of course, Swedish. And the theater was um, considered more like a 
um, venue for the bourgeoisie to come and to entertain their tastes and show their diamonds and so on. So um, high culture. Yes, exactly. So uh, the the people felt that this was not representing their daily lives and their daily life and language was Finnish. So they initiated their own uh, cultural houses, which theater was a part of these cultural houses. And it's these places that are called like Norisosura, uh, mm. right? Like um, community houses that they are everywhere in the countryside. You can find them also. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So a part of like this kind of organize, organizing within ourselves, like let's create something yeah. where we can entertain ourselves and which kind of fits our culture and our issues mm-hmm. and our daily life. And uh, there were a couple, uh, but they always had theater as a, a cultural element. I think most of these spaces, even if they have been more like cinema oriented or more used for just public uh, cultural events in the village or something most of them are built with a stage with a theater mm-hmm, stage mm-hmm. yeah as, as like the main setup yeah 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 which yeah i think it's fascinating that theater was respected or considered as a platform uh both to showcase uh i would say ideology like to to showcase like how like what what uh, what the these people stood for in that sense mm. and also to showcase uh their sort of issues or to entertain as well so it was not just one purpose but it was multi-purpose and um yeah uh when we were looking into the uh city uh theater museum archives actually of uh, finland there's uh, a lot of material that kind of uh a lot of the original scripts and the director director's books and um you can find anything from there was this play i think was called the the something like not the bold priest but something like that in a way was not kind of making fun of the priest but showed how the priest is involved so much in like the family life of the neighbors or the neighborhood and Kind of try, tries to save them, but kind of dives them into more troubles. But uh, it it was a bit like a farce. Um, and then there's stuff that's translated from fin- from French. Uh, so yeah, they, it was not like one line of of uh, material in the repertoire. It was quite diverse. And how old is this particular theater that we're in? Uh. Studio Pasila, so initially I think it was uh, this Teateri Pieni Suomi, if I'm not mistaken, since 1981. Uh, and uh, it used to be the main uh, children's theater in Helsinki. Oh, yeah. yeah, so there's also a lot of uh, material from the city, uh, like archives, from the, the museum archives that uh, have images of kids uh drinking this Tropicana and eating Hesburger after some show. <laughs> and uh, it's it's very 80s looking uh, images and performances. And uh, some people who came to see the performance have spoken that they remember being here and watching uh, shows as kids. Um, so yeah, it's it's got an interesting trajectory of uh, alternation, like from one purpose to another. Uh, but ultimately, also through looking at the historical element uh, 
and I didn't have enough time to dive deeply, but like this... It's also difficult with the language barriers yeah, and yeah. stuff, because a lot of this exactly. um, knowledge is only accessible with like Finnish language. Yes, or... so, uh, but luckily I had a producer who was uh, studying theater history. Mm. So um, most of the things uh, Nelly Hakkarainen, and I will want to kind of publicly acknowledge her mm. uh, incredible contribution to the project. Um, she was also like really like fast at translating uh, on the moment, and because like a lot of the theater archive materials you cannot take pictures of, so we were like kind of taking notes and then had to go back and be like, hey, we want to take this interview into the performance. And they had to kind of uh, ask us which one it is specifically from what part of the archive you got it. Because you got access to old recorded interviews. Yes, voice recordings. but transcript, transcripts of the interviews, not the audios. Ah, okay. But then you had someone like acted out or like voice acting. Yes. Urho Ilmari Tanner, born in 1887, former caretaker in the parliamentary house, who also painted sets and backdrops between Koitto, Kansannäyttävä, People's Theatre, the old student's house and the opera for about 50 years. When I was 16, I was bit by the theater fly. Now we can ask why did I jump between Koitto, Kansannäyttävä and the opera? Because at the opera you earn better, whereas at Kansannäyttämö the salary is given in segments. He was angry that the merger happened because, according to him, it damaged Koitto's profit. Koiton näyttämö died around 1920 because it was merged with the Kansannäyttämö. The most fun and wonderful times in my theater life were during 1926 at a student house which served as a stage for Kansannäyttämö. We were like a big family. And director Mia Bachman was the boss. She was very generous and fair. She would pay for coffee and cigarettes for the workers. The actors were comrades and we shared together all our sufferings and joys. So, um, we... Um had three actors uh, from the city theater. And uh, again, I will just take the surnames. Uh, one of them was uh, Vapu Nalbantolu. Uh, then it was June Hyde. And uh, uh, I think Marti's surname is Manninen. And these actors uh, are city theater ensemble actors. And... Uh, We decided that the performance should be interpreted by actors for many reasons. One of them being that the people who we interviewed, the t- technical staff, workers, um, didn't feel comfortable to expose their identity. Not all of them, but we had a consent form and some of them would be like, yeah, go ahead, like use my like my name, use my voice, whatever. Put this in the archive. Like, And some of them were more hesitant and... Uh, They were like, no, I mean, I'm giving you this to you as material for the work. So I recorded them, but uh, signed a kind of consent that we will not share this. So in order to make it coherent, also because of the space where the recordings of uh, the interviews happened compared to 
the reinterpretations that had to be done for some of the interviews we didn't have permission for, we decided that we're going for all with three okay, actors. So actually what I listened to was actors uh, reiterating. I work here as a carpenter for 12 years. I came here in 2014, but I have been here um, the first time I came here, I think it was 1988 or something. So I was working here as a stage design assistant for Ensio Suominen at the time. So he was my first contact here. What led you to work in the theater? Uh, I worked as a carpenter at Alexanderin Theatteri, where I met Hannu Viholainen, Finski, known as one of the best light designers in Finland. He worked with a band called Sieluveljet, Brothers of the Soul, a famous band in the 90s. They made indie rock and roll. He was very creative and full of crazy ideas, and he, he sucked me in. This lighting craziness and theater magic opened like, wow, <laughs> like a lightning strike. I've seen the smaller theater with not that much money to use. And then I see this Hokote, a big organization. We have money to do things and, and create things. We have the craziest of ideas, but I think that one thing... Sanoa, raha tappaa luovuuden. Mm. That ma, money, money kills your creativity. You know, it makes you a bit lazy. But of course it also gives a lot of possibilities to do things. But somehow, if you don't have that much, you have to invent, be much more creative. And that's a kind of nice thing as well. Yes. Anything else? I don't know. No, not at the moment. <laughs> of course, there's a lot of things I could tell, and there's a lot of things I shouldn't tell of what has happened in my career. <laughs> no, those were the real interviews. No, those were the re- reiterations of the interviews. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, but maybe, like, an, a very important element also is to, to, to emphasize that um, when I wrote the script... <clears throat> Uh, I took vis-a-vis like exactly uh, the way that the workers had told us the stories as a base to ask the actors to interpret them. Uh, so if they spoke with a lot of us and like they said a lot of likes and... Then you, they would preserve... Exactly. Yeah. Like the, the, the way that the trans- transcribing was done was exactly how they spoke. Yeah. And this was my inclination to sort of keep the originality of uh, the way they spoke and what they said. But also I think it's very specific about like how people go down the memory lane that, and look at us, like this is not perfect speaking. Like this, this, this has so, if you try to transcribe this, there's so many pauses and jumping from one tense to another and this and that. So, uh, but still somehow we understand each other. So this is fascinating about language. And, uh, I thought that it would, I was, I had a very strong impetus to, to utilize this method. Also, I was inspired by Lucy Kirkwood, who's a playwright from the UK that is also a friend of mine I met a long time ago in a 
uh, residency type of thing in Wiesbaden in Germany. And she, uh, I read some of her works, like lately this Chimerica, uh, China, America, mm-hmm. where she is doing this. And I was like, hey, this is brilliant. So in a way, I was kind of, I, really I got inspired. I really thought it was, from... of course, just natural interviews I listened to. I didn't even consider that they would have been acted. Yep. That's a very big compliment then from you to the actors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also just, I don't know, it didn't occur to me that that would have been like part of the premise. But mm. I, I, while working a lot with interviews and documentary in this way, mm. uh, I do realize it's sometimes a thing that people can be nervous with. Uh, mm. And yeah, I'm usually just less willing to adapt my format. So then either mm. I just... So, I just cut it out or don't use it or yeah. yeah um but so okay so let's go back so we get this uh historical intro in our ears and then we are invited to follow a guide we are split into groups and we are invited yeah. to follow a guide on this like physical tour around the theater building yes so the next sort of part uh continues with split groups Split experiences, um, hopefully split experiences, uh, where basically we we kind of enter on stage, but one part is sitting on the audience seats and the other one is on stage sort of facing each other. This is so interesting because my group got to be on stage and then Mm. the the other group was sitting in the audience looking at us. And Mm. it was this very interesting experience of Mm. being the performer without doing anything. Yeah. Uh, Just like lying or sitting, but knowing that like, people were like looking at you doing it, but also to be able to actually stand on this big stage, because even though it's not a huge theater and it's not this old fancy golden Mm -hmm. painted, it's still an experience to stand Mm. in the middle of a big stage or sit on it and be under these lights and in front of, you know, to see the audience like chair rows Mm -hmm. from this perspective is a special thing. um, If you have never tried it before, to to walk behind these big black curtains of molten that are in the sides of the stage and to walk on this like the bridge overhead where normally technicians would walk around and stuff um so yeah i always love to be able to be like uh, mm. on the back side of things if i can yeah 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 me too i mean it's uh, I would say, like, if, if I have to, again, theorize a bit, like, I've always liked to deconstruct things a bit and sort of bring a critical uh, aspect of reading uh, art because, um, yeah, I just find it interesting. Like, when you chop them down, like, trying to see what kind of are the pieces of it and then if you reconstruct them, how can you do it differently mm. instead of actually how they're kind of... Um, consensually accepted by the culture like this is how theater is done the audience sits on the seats and then the performer is on stage but how about we break that and the audience becomes the performer and Mm -hmm. uh uh, sits on the stage and then there is a change a shift of perspective after a pause where the audience goes to the prop backstage and has the chance to have a tactile experience with the props have you ever seen any stage props close by Have you ever touched any props? These are various objects that appear on stage, which the actors use to perform actions 
or that represent a certain ambience or atmosphere. Now. Please select a prop and feel free to take it to carefully examine it. How does it feel to touch it? Can you imagine a situation on stage where it could be used? We uh, actually follows by the going to the backstage the other way. So there's two sides of the backstage, one which kind of goes under the seats of the audience and is where the props or the kind of objects of the theater are. And then the other side is where the costumes of the actual performance that is happening are kept so that people, actors can go and change their costumes and kind of reappear on stage. And uh, the concept was that uh, the, the audience kind of come backs, comes back sorry, and then there is a shift of perspective. So those who are on stage go uh, into the audience seats and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So everyone has a complete experience of how it feels both sides. Mm, to be seen and to see, to be viewed and to watch. So like this gaze is an important element uh, of the performance, I think. Mm. Yeah, and I don't know, like, I, I can't remember how the other group was sitting at first when mm. I was on the stage and how they were sitting in the audience. But I noticed that then, like, I thought that we would swap immediately after and then we didn't do that. And I was like, oh, curious. But then later we swapped after being in other places. And then I realized my group, we sat exactly next to each other, like a tight row in the it's middle. It's so of funny. This. I've seen, I've noticed that being done a few times. So, like, is it because we've spent longer time together as a group through the theater that we don't like mind sitting closely next to each other, even though we are strangers? I think it's more like the way people sit on theater that there is not much availability. Like, you don't get the choice to because choose your seat. Because there are like seat. 300 seats, and yes. then we take up like 10 tightly close to each other in it's the hilarious yeah. and it's not your group only I've, I've okay. uh, observed so, it being done but does the first group also do it? Uh, depends I mean most most of the groups have sat close okay. to each other yeah, it's just, hilarious I think also just when I was walking into the row and considering if I should go all the way to the person or if mm. I should like leave space I think I felt like it seemed a little bit rude to not want to sit mm. next to them like, you mm -hmm. know, if I want to leave two chairs between me and someone, it's a little bit like saying, I don't want to be close to you. <laughs> yes. And also exactly like you were saying that you are kind of this group now. Yeah. So you kind of stick together. <laughs> yeah. Except that I at least once almost accidentally swapped groups because I oh, get distracted what... about what is happening. And then okay. like, yeah. Oh, it's lovely to hear the audience perspective or the <laughs> participants' pers perspective. Yeah, I also would say I was so happy because I touch a lot of things. Mm. I, I generally like um, 
experience a lot with like my sensory yeah. apparatus. So when we were standing on this long row where the props are, okay, so the props are in this like narrow hallway behind or under the chairs. And then like we were standing up against the wall and like in this long row looking at these shelves with props and waiting for instructions in our ears. And I immediately started like opening a box and looking into something, which actually I'm happy I'm here again because this is one thing I didn't look enough at while we were there. And you know, like everyone was always looking at me a little bit like you're touching stuff. Then you're not even told, yeah. And then it says in our ears, yeah, this is the prop room. Please choose an item and look closer at it. You can touch it and take it out from the shelf. Nice. One step ahead. <laughs> yeah, but you come also from the art world and but kind of... everyone does, no? It's like, this yeah. was, I was here for the general rehearsal ah, and like what someone said in the feedback afterward when we had this circle of feedback, mm. like, I hope for you, you will also get non-professional audience. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, but we did, uh, I think yesterday. And uh, I don't know, I, I would love to kind of talk uh, closer to someone who doesn't come from the art world or theater world or performance world to you know get their opinion of what did the performance did to them like how did they experience it i feel the same with this podcast actually Mm. that's one of the main reasons why even though i don't have time at the moment i wanted to do this podcast interview because this performance is a lot about what this podcast is also about Mm. um highlighting the technical production side of things and the Mm. like actual labor yes of the arts and and um looking at all the little details that are in artist life or yeah. or work because i find it super interesting and i don't know if i just find it interesting because it's relevant to me or if i also manage to convey it in a way that like opens some like doors of knowledge and insight to people from outside of the art world yeah i mean i think it's uh one cannot stress enough the importance of recognizing the labor of the artists because a lot of people, I don't know if you've heard it, but like saying, oh, it's art, you love doing it, right? So it should be free or it's entertainment and it's entertaining to do art. So that approach really needs to be broken and needs to kind of as much as possible be questioned because it's really hard work. It's a lot of hard work and it ca- might be fun, but also it's exhausting and it's uh, kind of, yeah, terrifying. Or it's like any other job, like it has its pros and cons. So I mean, yeah, it's it's not like any other job, but it's like a lot of other jobs in many ways. But it does have uh, other psychological um, <laughs> impact that is like implicitly just part of the career, which is not spoken about that much, which... Uh, Part of why what you're saying is yeah. is helping to make it worse. <laughs> but so I mean, this idea that like yeah, it should it's fun and easy, and you should just be grateful that you have the privileged choice to do it, mm. or you know all of this, where it's like yeah, but it's also a lot of like promoting yourself and like trying not to see him obnoxious, but still doing it enough that you actually can mm. manage uh, and. Mm, applying for opportunities and yeah like, and not taking too hard a hits um, and emotionally with like rows of rejections just yes. like again and again and again and it's yeah like there are a lot of yeah, yeah. shadow aspects but in this performance uh 
we don't go so deep into the the really hard parts of it. It's very light the mood I felt, but mm -hmm. it's fine because I enjoy people who've been in the industry for many years mm -hmm. talking about this. I enjoy documentary uh films about musicians and uh, iconic albums and all these like uh, producers telling about like why oh this iconic something came to be and it was just so inspiring to work with these people and yeah so you know to hear all these theater technicians talk like give anecdotal mm. uh like um funny highlights of their careers yeah and i think it's just wonderful yeah, it's uh, we have discussed it with the team, especially with a, a sound designer who is a key part of making the performance, Tio, Timo Vialainen, and it's our fourth collaboration mm. uh, in art piece artworks, performance artworks. And um, I would kind of easily say that he's a co-director because we discuss a lot, especially because sound was the, the main... Uh, element of the performance uh, we discuss a lot about like the content as well and he's a, a crucial part in also approving or kind of coming up even with ideas of kind of moving in the space and kind he's of he's also a performance artist he's also a performing artist yeah performance artist so um, yeah I mean like we discussed why there's no not more criticality or criticism towards the institution which i was expecting and the the questions i thought were kind of constructed in a way that uh we had like a question bank so we would go through pretty much we had a freestyle kind of conversation with the workers also but uh, but asking them more or less the same questions yeah individually all of them yeah so like the one of the questions like is also what do you dislike about your job or do you feel heard or mm. um uh, can you remember an instance when something went wrong in the production? And they would share these, but somehow they were not critical towards the institution most of the time. It's also a small industry. These create. I find that even in myself, I find it difficult to be completely honest about a lot of these things because mm. the creative world is a smaller world than many mm. others. We are in a small city in a country right. with few people. And so... You know, like it's people yes. know each other, but also mm. they need to still make it within this like little frame that then you shouldn't maybe too verbal. Uh, like, I also criticize or I don't know. Yeah, I, I also think there's other uh, elements because uh, first of all, I mean, they work in the institution and it seems like they have meetings where they would discuss the problems. Why would they go to some external person and complain about yeah. their job? And uh from my understanding of like talking to them, it seems like the institution works pretty well. Like it's very organized. And like we had, for example, a chance to witness it ourselves where I uh, wanted to use the dresser's room for one of the parts where you're going through the story of the dressmaker on mm -hmm. your ears. And I asked the stage, the stage manager from this, of this stage. And he said, I have to talk to, to the person. So in, in terms of hierarchy, uh, the person who uses the it's room makes the final... Space. Exactly. Yeah. It's their final word. So in a way, I think that's the way it should be. Mm. Uh, that, you know, it, the directives don't come from above, but the person who is doing the job is actually the one making the final decision. Mm. In a sense, I felt that that person doing that job is actually respected for what they're doing. 
So, yeah, I mean, there were, this is just an example, but there were other instances where the workers felt that they were given the opportunity to, you know, speak up. Uh, one critical aspect, well, the most critical aspect was with the artistic teams, where the artistic teams tend to take longer times to come up with solutions or with ideas, and that kind of drags the job of the kind of those who realize it. And uh, then those who re have to realize those props or costumes or lights or whatever have to rush or stay overtime in order to realize the ideas of the artists who needed a bit longer time to ins get inspired. So this was one of the kind of areas. And uh, another uh, thing that I wanted to bring up uh, was also that the, uh, the workers have grown in their position. From, from the interviews, we realized that like they may have started as a, a carpenter, but they ended up sort of being inspired to become a light designer. Mm. So it is an institution that allows space for you to explore and to move up and kind of in leadership roles. But a lot of people work for like decades. Do you think this is only applicable to this specific uh, theater that you have worked with or is this like generally theater life in Helsinki or in Finland or mm -hmm. Helsinki City Theater as a, a like an umbrella institution? Yeah, I, th I think it's it's in terms of the city theater. Like mm -hmm. the, this knowledge comes from interviewing workers not only like not who, who work in the Studio Pasila but from other stages. But from the city theater yes, um, yes. Um, uh, institution yeah. which comes from like as a for the people, by the yeah. people style. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think uh, that's, I, I can only speak about city theater because that's the one that I have sort of researched a bit deeper mm -hmm. as a individual artist coming from another country and uh, studying in quite apparently, I didn't know that it's a prestigious theater school, but at Theater Academy. Um, oh, yeah, we are in, in the art, like in uni arts, and it's uh, super elitist. In yeah, I didn't ways. know. Yeah. Uh, luckily, when I applied, I didn't uh, look into that. But uh, I mean, I've, I guess it depends on the experience, but my experience was uh, so that um, I felt that I was given space to explore as a student, first of all, what exactly interest me mm. not what the teacher would tell me that was what I need to do or that's what is the best for my artistic kind of growth or career and uh, also I have been given opportunities as a foreign or international artist um, also outside of the theater academy institution so I feel that maybe also because there is not uh, the community is not so wide that there is the possibility to give room. This is my experience, that I felt that I was given space to uh, speak my artistic language and be supported for it. Not that's, always, but... That's really nice. Yeah. And even with like language and culture barriers, that yeah. you didn't feel like you were on the outside of things here? Uh, I mean... Well, of course we are, but like yeah. you, you still felt like you had opportunities they were, and options. Yes. That's yeah, yeah, nice. definitely. Yes. I mean, I don't know how much it uh, enables you to live out of it. Like you have to do five gigs, ten gigs, whatever gigs to overwork yourself to be able to pay your rent and kind of survive. But um, if you're lucky enough to get a grant, which not everyone is, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other thing. Like, oh, this yeah. grant culture is a big issue, I think, uh, for the culture. But uh, in a way, it gives you room to, to, to artistically convey yourself. Like, I have had many um, experiences and opportunities to, to try out different things. And probably this uh, uh, working with Studio Pasila, which is within this Nukuyasi and Nayatama, which is a great initiative. It means a stage for contemporary performance. It was initiated by three curators who wanted to a bit um, mix up the classical or standard studio Pasila, um, not studio Pasila, but city theater audience with the contemporary scene, uh, performance scene, which is a bit like on the edge and doesn't necessarily... Yeah, because that's why we say that people are performance artists and yes. not actors. Or theater makers, or theater exactly. Makers, because there is a distinction. And yeah, yeah. like in the theater school, these are different study programs. Exactly. And um, so, yeah, like a performance artist is not a person who reads lines from a script that someone else wrote. A performance artist usually conceptually develops their own performances and yes. often performs them alone. And it's rarely something with like reading anything that has been pre-written. Right, right. Unless it's a part of the concept or whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so like the framework for what performance is and where it can take place and how can be much more blurry uh, than what we consider as classical theater. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I have a suggestion because our uh, the next group that is going to work is, should be needing the stage soon. So yeah, why like don't we move to... More lights were just yes. turned on and we can see even more of the cables and lamps and yes. things that are hanging here uh, in the room, which is otherwise... Hidden, which was a nice uh, touch to use the space in the performance you did where we're standing on the bridge and mm. then like the lights come on and we can actually see all the lamps and things that are mm. hanging in the ceiling that are normally hidden and at the same time this technician is saying in our ears yeah these are the best seats in the house like right above the stage <laughs> and no one can see you even though you are only a few meters above the actors <laughs> yeah it's lovely mm -hmm. Where are you situated on the stage during the performance? Uh, our workstation is four meters high on the bridges and uh, that's like the second best spot to see the performance after the sound and light stuff. We also have many monitors or screens to follow it, so we see everything. It's, it's quite interesting. We, we are like flies in the ceiling and the audience doesn't even know we are there. Okay, so where are we moving to? Uh, maybe let's move to the uh, hairdresser room. Yeah, or can we be in the costume room? Do you think they need that? Uh, I, I don't know if Paula is still there. Or uh, we can be in the hairdresser room. It's just we can be in the backstage here. It's just that, like the hairdresser room that I was in last time had very, very bright lights. Okay, like, uh, hurting I my eyes one. bright. Were you in the mask, like the, the makeup room, or in the? Oh, I was in the makeup room. Okay, so the the, the hair room is the other one. Maybe it's okay. better. Please follow your guide to the next station. Mind your steps. So we are moving to the backstage. Yeah, I'm just. It will probably be super noisy with the uh, walking. Yeah. The oh, door. this is what I called the costume room. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and if uh, they need to work here, then we can move to. We the can hair. just move again. Yeah. Like it's wonderful with this recorder that it's very mobile. Yes, you can just move. And also, so. this room is quite 
Interesting. So now we can also describe the space. Yes. So this is the backstage, which is kind of behind. Moment. The... I will just put down my yeah. tiny, tiny carp uh, cardboard cup, paper cup. The tiniest paper cup in the world. It's for a shop, not the glass. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a cheap way to, to serve water in the entrance. Yeah. Here you can have a sip of water, literally. Um, Take a sip of water. Yeah, I think I will just um, maybe place this here. Okay, okay, then it should be fine. Yes, so we were speaking about the stage manager who speaks about like um, where they're situated, which is five, five, four meters high up the stage. And I don't know what the... This is the, the bad part about moving because you have this flow and kind of tangent of going back and forth and now we have to kind of warm up to... Um. Yeah, so but they're like <laughs> that is how the performance also is, right? We move from space to space. But oh, then wow. we moved. <laughs> yeah, now we will have this music in the background. <gasps> okay. Okay, the sound technician is testing out the sound setup. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I hope we won't get copyright flagged in oh. the podcast <laughs> oh, <wow>. website. <laughs> no, I think it will be fine. It's very like in the background and short. Um but yeah, so in the performance, we also are moving around and sitting, and then the people talking in our ears are like uh, relevant to the spaces that yeah. we are in. And this is this space we're in now is shared between like costumes and like some storage and gear, and then the main technician, the stage technicians, I guess, have their yeah. workspace here because there are a lot of tools and a lot of all these little drawers with. Um, screws yeah. and things yeah i mean it's it's a, you called it right like it's a shared space because uh one part is pretty much like where the actors also stand waiting for their cue to go into the stage there and is this, like a makeup dresser yeah. uh, thing that is on wheels so it can even be moved around for yeah. where it's needed <laughs> and for the actors to look at themselves final yeah uh, one more time before they go publicly um yeah, so it was important to situate the participants uh, in the rooms on the backstage uh, from where the people who we interviewed uh, were telling stories. So mm -hmm. if uh, someone was speaking about costumes, it didn't make sense that they didn't see any, the audience or the participants didn't see any costumes or... No, exactly. The stage operator sits like four meters up and the audience was quite up high there, uh, able to observe and see the bridges. And mm -hmm. uh, then we end up in the mask uh, and the mm -hmm. hairdresser's room where uh, hair and makeup artist or this mm, hair and makeup uh, stylist, I would say, uh, tells of her experience of um, um, doing both and kind of like how it feels to like how long it takes to do things. Uh, and how, how the work is organized. Like, I was very interested always to hear of how they work. Like, what do they do first? And what is, like, the routine of... And some of them would be like, of course there's no routine. Like, but... Um, but there is. But there they is. They just don't realize because they are used to it. And they don't realize mm. that um, nobody else knows or that it could even be interesting for... To yeah, hear, yeah. like, how often they do the laundry, for instance, about the mm -hmm. costumes that they... They do it like on Sundays, I think they said, or Mondays. They do it on Mondays, on Mondays. because there's shows on the weekend. And, and then, then we were here on a Monday and I was like, 
but what about these costumes? Are they not being washed today? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Actually, these were put as a kind of, these are our stage uh, Ah, okay, so these costumes. are not from a show. No, Paola, who is the uh, dresser from this uh, s- stage or this house, uh, she arranged it for us so that it looks like... Uh, Okay. There is costumes. But yeah, it's not a place where the costumes are made. But Okay, so actually the interviews are reiterated by actors and the costumes are reiterated by the costume designer yeah. to perform as their natural selves se- set up. Yeah, the, the, the costumes are definitely performing as well. That's nice. Ah, that would be lovely to have thanked them. <laughs> and we thank the costumes that are in the three racks on the backstage. Okay, Uh, well, um, I have been working in this theater for almost 23 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not in this position, but I have been dealing with costumes and growing up in my position. Um, um, My job is kicking those dress designers to be on time with the schedule. They are um, not all, all, but but some need more kicking than the others, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because, well, if the play is well designed and all is well planned, uh, we have if enough time to do it and, and, and there is no rush to the dressmakers in that case. Mm. We're doing about 30 performances and we make thousand costumes in one season uh, from October to the summer break. And we do something like... Um, Five performances at the same time. Five? That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And all the laundry from the weekend place collects for Monday, and we have four machines, but we have to usually do like 40 loads. Um, And also, every every detail, every sock has to be marked uh, which play is it for and whom does it belong to. So we have, we have. We have tags that are color-coded. This is green, this is yellow, and yeah. And uh, my job is to make sure that the clothes are ready for every play that has a rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the common problems when dealing with costumes? Mm, uh, when we're doing something like historical, like Mannerheim, those um, uh, war uniforms uh, are quite hard to find or make. And 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 um, Mannerheim was a really really hard performance to make mm. because uh, he was such a high-ranked officer. Uh, we needed to know exactly what kind of pins he used, and and those pins are really hard to find. And if someone makes Mannerheim, they call us and ask uh, which. Which kind of pins do, uh, does he have? If if um, uh, if he has a meeting with the Germans, he wears these pins. And if he has a meeting with someone who doesn't like Germans, he removes those pins and puts different ones. And these pins are really exact because uh, throughout the war times, rules rules changed uh, changed according to the historical landscape. What pins can be used? And who notices this? Mm. There is this guy who is a colleague, an expert on Mannerheim, and and like um, I contacted him, and he helped us about Mannerheim a lot. And when the play was staged, my phone rang. Uh, this guy called to say uh, there were no mistakes on those pins. Can I come to see those uniforms at the theater? And I said, No, you can't, because the pins we didn't find. We we made out of plastic. But uh, he was watching with binoculars, and he didn't see any mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it, yeah it was a lot of fun uh diving into it and making it and uh, sort of building these layers of sort of 
pinpointing the performer, the, the participants in the neighborhood and in the city theater itself and in the history of the theater and then kind of zooming, slowly in. zooming into the kind of stories of the workers, uh, but specifically not the workers in general, where the history of city theater derives from, but these specific workers of Yeah, very personal anecdotes theater. and yes. stories and, and very personal uh, career uh, stories and yeah 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 it was lovely to talk to them I, I had a lot of fun and uh, it was really tough to select what part of the interviews to put into the piece because for example if a talkative interviewee spoke for 45 minutes which is approximately how the interviews mm. how long the, they were it was like a 10-page transcribed yeah. interview. And uh, 10 pages is a lot of material, but uh, we kind of agreed that the piece would last for one hour. I mean, also, if like you have five interviews and they're all 45 minutes, you will have to have the performance be at least four, five times 45 yeah, minutes. No. It's a really long performance. Yeah, but it's a podcast. Exactly. And, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's about like also, I mean, I guess there's where my voice comes in because yeah. then the pieces and how I kind of tie them up dram dramaturgically and like uh, what I chose to share is kind of what I'm telling, the what I'm sharing with the participants yeah. or the audience is like, the emphasis is kind of my my part, I would say. Yeah, you said it on Monday when we came for the general rehearsal that you were like, yeah, we just killed a lot of darlings, like right now. Yeah, yeah. Last because minute. <laughs> there was like my favorite part, although for some people, and I've noticed people who come from the movement experience, the dancers and mm. they, or the actors, they had a hard time to ground during the historical part. And then there were some theoreticians or the theorists uh, or I don't know, like people who deal with history and they're like, oh, I love the historical part. I wish it was longer. And I'm like, it was longer, but we had to cut it because some people were like speaking. And I, I love to get like the audience's feedback. So yeah, like, it's uh, good to find a middle ground. Like Timo where... said it was too crammed. Yeah, it's a lot material. of information. It's a lot of historical dates. And I mean, so, okay, I just want to explain this word to the audience, like, mm. kill your darlings means, like, um, yeah, cut out things that you might like, but it From will, your work. But the work will be better if you omit it. So, yep. yeah, so you, you kill your darlings. But, um, I mean, if there should be someone who didn't know the term. But, yeah, um, yeah I was, we talked a little bit about this after the performance, but... I had a hard time a little bit like focusing in this very historical. Mm. I think it's also just because it's the first part of the performance. So the you second. Are... Yeah, but I consider the whole front part ah, of the theater okay. in a way to be part of like the first part of my experience. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, that might not be how you have acted like yeah, 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 spread yeah, it yeah. out. But Which like is nice to have different perspectives. Yeah, but it's this whole you're still getting used to being with headphones in a group mm. where everyone are like silently together you're still getting used to like the info coming in your ears and and then it's a lot of information yep. every time it's a lot of like names titles uh years all these numbers mm. and then my brain is like all over the place and yeah. i don't know the language or the history and so for me it's harder to there are not so many like uh, anchors to mm -hmm. hold on to, yeah, yeah. Um, but also maybe it's not super important no, because I, think... I understand the, the gist of it all. Exactly, and I think it's not like I I don't expect 
the audience to to memorize and grasp it. To... It's not like a history class, but <laughs> no, it's exactly. more like. Uh, like that's the most documentary part yeah. in a way also. And there are like actual old sound bits of like uh, performances and concerts and stuff. Right? Yeah, they were also reinterpreted by the actors because the quality of the sound bits that we got was really bad. Okay. So it just like there was no way to equalize them and to make them even slightly acceptable for the quality yeah. of the sound. So again, they were tr- reinterpretations of the transcripts. Okay. Of the interviews. But then, like, Timo has done the sound design, so it sounds yeah. like old sound recordings, he, and, yeah. and there's, like, old jazzy sound bits and stuff. Yeah, yeah. He, he has uh, dived into the theater archive, like, the sound archives of the theater, so there are bits from actual theater pieces yeah, exactly. that he's using. Yeah, Yeah, which is lovely. I mean, I, I really respect him as a performing artist, visual artist, but also as a sound artist. He's um, very kind of fine ear for for detail and i think that's the beauty well, he is ed- educated as a sound engineer if i'm not right and wrong. worked at the so, theater for yeah. almost 20 years at the national theater as the as a sound artist or sound uh designer or sound technician, uh, sound technician. <laughs> they have very different roles sound but, uh... technician no not not the designer sound technician but uh um anyway i i yeah i mean also it comes down to when you collaborate with someone a few times, it's so much easier to communicate. Yeah, of course. And also then um, collaboration is a lot about trust and yes. like what can I delegate and not. And I think this is a good segue into what I wanted to to maybe circle in on mm-hmm. is you and your role in this. Because mm. how do you title yourself in this piece like what is your role so i mean according to the uh what we decided in the brochure i have to even look at okay, it like because... in the press material yeah it's a concept uh directing and dramaturgy okay yeah because it's your idea yeah and you have been like the main octopus director type yeah. overseeing everything yes. deciding who to work with uh and um, deciding how to, how to tie it together making and, final decisions about what to keep what to yeah. cut uh what to develop and all of this yeah so yeah we talked a little bit before the podcast started about being this like multi-producer role on mm. things while also being an artist within the thing and like it's it's a lot of things if you also have to be a technician and stuff so having someone that you know you can trust and knowing what their skill sets and ability range is right is just Ooh, such a luxury really, if you yeah. can be if, if you're able to keep working with the same people absolutely and uh, also in this piece or in the making of it uh, I was even more privileged because I had a creative producer and we titled it creative producer because the producer also brought uh, ideas but also brought the uh, kind of historical landscape uh, Nelly is a hist- history student or graduating now, but mm. um, and a contemporary dancer. So she was also bringing like her interpretation uh, into into the the play, uh, into play, and uh, also a curator because the way the Nukeasituksenaitama, the stage for contemporary performance program is um, designed, is that three curators actually have invited people to. Uh, book slots, which I really like how how they organize the 
or how they have kind of uh, placed the application process. Mm. So the curators made a kind of promotion that we are inviting ideas for um, the stage for contemporary performance, which happens within Studio Pasila. And mm. then you book a slot. And then one of the curators that you booked a slot with, you have an interview with without the need to make an application. So they are like pre-attached as curators to the project exactly. but you are selecting each other based on this personal meeting yes wow and no application because i think they were trying to challenge this uh extremely mm, it's heavy... a little bit rigid this written true, true, application but... format yeah the application like writing an application also requires so much labor i only had one in also one extra hour. time and they also yes. have to read it like and yes. they have to read not one but maybe a hundred or two hundred or right. three hundred but then here they're also the ones who really need to listen very well what you're saying because they're the ones who are then sharing with the other curators oh, so they have to like uh... decide together Yeah, and so they have to remember and understand well enough. So exactly. To, oh, it's very interesting. Very like, interesting I like process. to make it make it very personal and verbal and yeah. And in the Finnish culture of things, not so common. Yeah, I think they challenge the kind of format of working in many layers with yeah. with this project. I really appreciate this um, this way of working, and it's been really amazing to work like with Rika Thits, who's the who was the cur curator of the performance and. Uh, really believed in the in the idea and uh initially my desire was that uh, we co-create the piece with the technical workers of the studio pasila mm -hmm. uh theater space and we i tried to pitch the idea but um it, i think the workers were already overworked and uh sort of comfortable in their comfort zone of I doing have, their jobs i have to say i have done enough like stage tech jobs uh and worked in enough why why uh or like not that i have been like a stage technician but i have done like uh, lights for concerts and i have done like uh, random concert venue jobs wow now the wall is opening yeah, up it was supposed to be a part of the performance <gasps> but we decided to take the it. wall is opening up and i can see through the stage to the audience rows again how magical Uh, we might have magic. to move again. Yes, I think we we need to go to the hair. Yeah. Uh, okay, also, let's do that. Because I'm not feeling comfortable. I think the group should. No, no, yeah. it's fine. It's fine. Uh, it will be more like we experienced it in the performance <laughs> in now on to this podcast. Yeah, they're moving the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> spot your guide now and follow them to the next spot. Please mind your steps. Yes, it's uh, a, there is a lot of square meters that you don't realize when you just like enter a theater space. Like most of the square meters, maybe you don't actually get to see as an audience. There's some laundry happening. Yeah, it's Friday, not Monday, but I guess it is allowed to do laundry on other yes. days. Oh, so that was uh, the person who spoke was from the main stage? Ah, it was from another theater. Oh, this is much better. Yeah, exactly. And this will be like ours, so... Also, I didn't get to be in this space last time, so now I get to be There here. We go. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
So, um, yeah, I'm a makeup and hair designer. I've been working here for 18 years. So I started in Studio Pasila. I worked there for 10 years. Mm-hmm. What's your typical day at work like? Well, there's no such a thing to start with, because if I have a day shift, usually it's maintaining the wigs, um, like because they get damaged and um, in the shows. So maybe like washing them or like fixing the holes and adding some hair if some is missing or producing some new wigs. So it's like um, it's like usually the day shift. Mm. Uh, how long does it take to produce a wig? Uh, a week, yeah. Basically, 40 hours if you're making the whole wig from scratch. But yeah, and also we like custom make. We take measurements from the performers and we custom make the wigs only for them. I cannot bring, for instance, when I'm having a bad day, I cannot bring it to the makeup room for a mono drama and pour it on the performer because that would like make the worst show ever. So, so it's like it's really sensing the situation with the performer and uh, what to talk and and what's the mood today and going along with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes so much empathy to withhold yourself. Mm. But also, I feel like like it's it's always an honor when you're like expected with a certain performer to like be for instance in a very fragile environment it's like i feel really proud of myself in those moments mm-hmm. mm. a little bit of caretaker maybe yeah 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 sometimes we call ourselves daycare workers um we're asking actors like hey did you remember to go to the bathroom or you know, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. sometimes i felt a bit like a bit sad because i had to give up some ideas that i felt were really working well but for some reasons practical or artistic they don't go along with the vision of the director or a costume designer or someone else has so um it's like it's been like sometimes it's really sometimes sometimes i've i've cried over i think I think my good ideas that are like just thrown away without me understanding why. Sometimes I really understand why something does not work in the big picture, but sometimes it's just like there was one one production where I made quite a lot of work. The budget was really small, so I had to like improvise a lot and I was working my ass off and basically Everything was taken out from the show, and I was like, "Fuck!" <laughs> But then I was like, "How do I turn this like nasty feeling of me like not?" I, I almost felt not respected because like everything was thrown out. I was like, "Is this so shitty that like nothing is good enough?" But then I was like gathering all the stuff I had made for the show to the makeup room and I made an exhibition of all the characters that were cut from the show because there were like so many. And and the last piece in my art was actually one actress whose character was cut out like two days before the premiere. And I, I asked her, can you please put 
those clothes on of the character that just got cut out in the last minute. And can you please come and sit with this like, like my piece of art of removed characters? And she did. And I got a picture and I was like, if people are not getting my art on the stage, I am making art backstage. Uh, let's just describe this room because it's quite interesting and then I can luckily easily remember how to segue back because that is part of my job. Um, so yeah, this is the uh, hairdresser's room or the room where uh, the... Are you comfortable there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sitting in the most comfortable chair, like where the star usually sits to have their hair done. So it's a lot of sprays and brushes and uh, pins for the hair and, uh, and like shaving a, machines. And, and, and like wig mannequin heads and these like um, wig holders on the, uh, on the walls. Yeah. Wow, that was a very novel word I just forgot. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a cool room. And, and it's, it's like a, a hairdresser. Washer, washer, chairs. And it's like going to the to the hair uh, salon, but like inside of a theater. Uh, yeah, I like exactly. <laughs> so it mix between like a painter's studio somehow because there's a lot of like extra bottles and things and brushes, like more than you would see in a normal commercial <laughs> yeah. It's lovely. I love this yeah. space. And uh, sometimes when, like for example, today on the third round, because we had ten, we have ten run through runs of the show, in, uh, twelve including the general rehearsal and the run through, mm -hmm. and uh, this was the fourth today, or no, the sixth. We have no, the seventh. We have three <laughs> more. We have three more tomorrow, and it has to total on ten. So it's the seventh, mm -hmm. and the last, the seventh one was very uh, small group. So. Yeah, maybe it's important for the listener to also point out that because of a lot of moving and um, because of uh, so the small spaces that we are ending up in, we decided that the performance is suitable for 20 people. Maximum. Maximum. Mm -hmm. And uh, also to be very, we decided to be very, I mean, it's necessary, I guess, to be very explicit about the uh, how it's not like, Uh, suitable for every category of the audiences, so this is not a wheelchair friendly. Yeah, no, there's like the accessibility. You're walking it's around. It's not an like, accessible performance. You're walking like the like the actors are in these like dark, narrow places with steps that you can barely see. You have to know that they're there so you don't trip. And But then you have the guides and the voice on your ear says, "Please watch your step." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but definitely, they're not for. I mean, no. even some old grandma situations mm -hmm. or something would maybe. It's a lot of stairs up and down and. Yeah, yeah. So it's not an accessible performance, but then, for example, when you go on the website and you're trying to buy the ticket, you have the dates for the performance, and then you have something written underneath uh, that says this performance has a lot of movement and it's a hearing listening performance. So it's also not for someone who's hard of hearing and yeah, hard of like seeing. With you, I don't know how hearing aids really exactly. work with no. headphones. Yeah. And... But I think, I mean, as long as. Uh, You are transparent about who it is for. Oh yeah, I don't it's think totally that like, everything yeah. needs to be for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I think this idea that everything needs to be so super uh, neutralized and accessible mm. and like watered down that everyone can accept it and everyone can access it and everyone can consume it in the same equal manner. I don't know if 
if that is like good it's art not or good culture yeah. either. Like I don't want something that is so bland that everyone mm. likes the taste of it. Honestly, mm, it's like for me, it's more like because uh, it, it would have narrowed the uh, possibilities of its artistic development. Like yeah, I could also, not have done. No, like if people need to go yeah. with the wheelchair. It it's, this, it just doesn't work. I think it's a matter of accepting the situation. Mm, yeah, for sure. And yeah. like you say, just transparency. Like now, the cultures are strong in the arts to to write really clearly at the yeah. accessibility yeah, yeah. situation. And so, as long as you do that, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, then I guess someone could always contact you and ask, like, could I? participate under other circumstances right. or somehow you know yeah exactly um yeah okay so but back to where we were talking before so we talked about how you initially wanted to include the technicians and all of these people you interviewed more directly as performers as a co-creators or co-creators co of yeah and then they were like quite comfortable with their jobs but also quite busy with them so I have worked enough of these like behind the scene production jobs in different clubs and venues and things to know also a lot of the people who choose to be technicians. Yes. They are quite shy. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. actually want to they don't mind performing with mm -hmm. lights or sound being part of the performance. Right. But they want to do it from the shadows where no one realizes they are there. They are shadow performers and yes. that's how they like it. They exactly. Made a big career about touring the world mm -hmm. as a shadow, for instance. That's that's very true. Actually I was discussing this with a guest uh, earlier today who uh, somehow this comment came uh, up uh, about the process of uh, working and uh, basically there's a lot of nuances like some have really chosen to be technicians like some said really like why would I want to be on stage I chose to be on the backstage mm -hmm. but then there are those also from who, whose story I included on purpose because I found it preposterous that this person wanted to be an actress and she has applied at Theatre Academy three times and didn't get in. Oh, yeah. And then she decided that, ah, okay, let me look at what are the other possibilities of working because in theatre. I just want to work with the theatre. Exactly. Yeah. So then realized that actually what they wanted was not to be an actress, but to work in the theatre. Yeah, like, it, that was the stage manager one. Yes. Yeah, I really liked, I resonated with, with several of the things that she said uh, about this, like, yeah, I didn't know... That there were all these hidden jobs, like yeah. I wanted to work in the Which theater is <laughs> since I was a child, or like, and I didn't realize that you could do anything else but act in the yeah, theater. Yeah, yeah, and it could be just more fun, even like equal or equally fun. I'm the stage manager. My responsibility is the set changes, communicating with the techs and between the techs, and the director and everyone else. If a person comes to the theater, they don't see me but they kind of see what I do. So all the set changes, the timings, the floors moving, the walls moving are my cues for the tech guys. So it's like in my timing and my word that they will move those. But they, well, most people don't know that I exist, <laughs> that I'm there. So I'm this invisible person right next to the stage, but, but in the darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what skills have you developed in this profession? Ah, oh, like, I don't know how to say that. Um, like, uh, you, you will see beforehand what has an effect on something. So if this breaks, what will happen and what should we do? Or do we react to that or do we leave it for later? So it's like, uh, like really quick reaction skills to things. 
And then maybe people skills. Like I know when to talk to people and when not to. And you can learn to see in an actor if you want to approach them to ask something or when it's not a good time. I understand the whole picture and I love that. And I think it makes my job easier because when you do something, you have to think of all the departments. You can't say, well, we want to do it this way. You have to ask everyone if you do something in, in a performance because it makes a difference to everyone if you change anything. Mm-hmm. And I think I think my super talent is to ask people because then they feel important. <laughs> they know everything and they're like super talented. And I'm I always say I'm not good at anything, but I know who is. So I know the person I should go and ask for their opinion. In every show, I have my favorite <clears throat> my favorite part when I really succeed in something, in some timing. Like you have to give a cue to an operator to lift something in like exactly when the music starts and you see the conductor go like <clears throat> with their hand and I'm like, yeah, now go. And then you see the music and the movement like exactly at the same time. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else like even notices that and I'm always like oh yeah good job and it's beautiful and I love that we have directors that see that like they really see that the timing is like really accurate so that makes me happy about myself and I'm like oh that's great. Hmm. No just that I mean my desire was to Mm, serve all these possibilities or to kind of like offer the participants the stories of those who chose to be uh, in this role and they love it and they did it on purpose but then also those who kind of dived a bit deeper and figured out that there's other ways other things to do or just or, or people who started from a very low position and grew up in their position as the head of the whatever department so it's it's for you to take whatever you want with you and uh, for me as a author of the work to propose many kind of ways of how things are done or what I've taken from these uh, workers. And it's like a portrait piece, right? Yes. So you paint mm. a portrait of like, of this little, like you slit a little uh, mm. hole into this theater life or, yeah. or culture and then we get to peek in and see like a part of it, a, a mm. tiny little version or example. Right. Because of course there are so many people, so many stories, so many theaters, uh, yeah. anywhere in the world would be different maybe. Yeah, totally. But also similar because for mm -hmm. instance some of these like jobs you end up in that are not like the whole, it's like when you say you're an artist or you study art, everyone are like, so you paint? And yeah, it's like basically the only thing I don't do, but it's um, <laughs> but that, that is what comes to mind mm. because it's very classical, just like theater, and people think about someone standing I in the light on the stage. Um, yeah. Whereas, like the stage manager said in the in my ears, that like uh, when my job is basically a lot of times it's just like people ask me questions and I refer them to someone else who knows the answer because. I don't know a lot, but I usually know who to ask. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I really, that's what made so much sense to me because with this podcast and generally a lot of production or facilitation or roles I do, I usually say like, I'm not an expert in anything, yeah. not very good at any one thing, 
but I'm very good at many things like a little bit or I right, know right, right. I don't know a lot about anything but I know like a little bit about so much yeah. that I am I am able to talk to all these people and have like real conversations using some of the language that they actually use in their job yeah. even though I wouldn't be able to do the job but I right. can ask the right questions about the job and so well you're good at uh making a podcast and yeah, becomes, exactly. yeah, being a kind of journalist or art journalist I think or I, I don't know if you like that uh, kind of name just like yeah you're good at something and many things but and also production roles yes. like we talked about before being a producer is like it's a very undefined role it right it's mean, a difficult role it can mean a lot of things yes but basically you have to be resourceful in the way that you have to know not one thing super well because you are not doing the sound design but you have to know enough about sound to know how to, to ask to talk to this right. person and and yes. as a director also you have to know what to ask for or how to give guidelines or yeah 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 so yeah yeah um it's a, i mean very interesting professions i think you're bringing up something really important this uh, what does it mean to know a little bit of a lot or even to have the connections or to know the people who to know the people is also another thing yeah for who sure who know yeah so i mean communication clearly is a big part of uh, of the job itself like how and and also like speaking a little bit of how we worked like there was so much need to um communicate in different levels like to communicate with the artistic team and then Luckily, the producer Nelly was there to communicate with the theater most of the time. But then, sometimes I had to communicate with the theater directly, and sometimes I had to con- communicate with the dresser directly. So, uh, with the with the guides, because we didn't mention, but there's two guides in the performance that have also a very important role, and they're the guides who work at the theater, and mainly their job is to take care of the audience. That's what they say. Uh, so they're the ones who kind of greet the audience and or the lobby attendants, you could say. They were dressed like the guys who would check your tickets usually, or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but they, they have such a big role in the performance. But because once the the perform- participants are sp- split in two groups, then they're led by by these guides mm-hmm. in through the space, and um, yeah, um, communication is a very interesting aspect of uh, when you're working. Because my background is theater, like playwriting. Yeah, I wanted to ask yeah. about that. If you actually, if you had just like been curious about theater, and that's why you made this performance, or if you know about theater before. So uh, I would say maybe that I work with theater and performance for the last twenty years. Yeah. Okay. So I have studied dramaturgy, playwriting, and screenwriting. What did you study in Tiak here? Uh, live art and performing studies, mm. and then I studied uh, critics of theater and drama in Istanbul at the Istanbul University. Oh, so you also have from many different cultures a way mm-hmm. of approaching theater and performance. Wow, that is so uh, rich to have mm. to have that yeah, in your yeah. language. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, the approach to theory that I got in Turkey is uh, kind of entering this post-structuralist or, like, more, like, post-modern theater. And, uh, and it, it was like a gateway into kind of com- contemporary performance. Mm-hmm. But it was mostly dedicated to uh, critical theory and uh, theater criticism. So, like, I've also written a lot of theater reviews. Okay. 
And from Kosovo, do you, did you do like classic theater or? And uh, not exactly. I mean, from the basis of theater all the way to, I think we kind of finished with Brecht and uh, uh, Beckett. And so like <clears throat> basically mid 20th century. Uh, and luckily from mid 20th century until today was the part that we covered in Turkey so kind of it completed my mm. my knowledge in that sense all theater history yeah, yeah, I, 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 the yeah. Finnish people theater yes. branch out <laughs> yeah in, in, but the good thing about my studies in, in, in Kosovo were that, was that uh, we uh, actually learned how to write scripts and mm. how to write plays so but my if you want to say like the root of my passion and artistic interest is in writing okay like I primarily am a writer and I started writing when I was six so did you also develop this project on paper a lot yeah hmm. I mean not not like uh, I guess the script yes but then um, there was a lot of sort of taking bits and pieces and putting them in a Google Drive <laughs> And just yeah. organizing oh, things. Oh, the Google Drive. Which is the is magic the, of Google. <laughs> you could go to shared document uh, portal for collaborative creative But work. it works. It does. And I wish I could do it outside of Google, but it really does work to work in real time, be able to edit the same document and like com constantly comment on each other's yes. process. And like, it's just so valuable for this kind of like, Because you can't meet physically all the time if you no. don't share a studio or a, no. an office. If you share an office space and yeah. you every day are together, fine. Right. You can sit around the table. Yes. But most of us do not do that. Even mm -hmm. if we're in the same city, people are super busy. And like with our with my collectives and stuff, we have to still do Zoom meetings half of the time. Yeah. Because we just like it takes too much to have even lunch meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Meet. Yeah. Yeah. The perks of. Uh multitasking as an artist or doing multiple projects yeah and like what you said before that you were so fortunate on this project to have like to first of all to even have external producer curator roles other people doing that, but also to have an, a curator and a producer and then you as the director because I would say quite often you are in a no budget situation where you are Those three roles are one role, yes, which is like the main which I've done. Who <laughs> also does curating and PR yes. and everything, and you are this main person. If you're lucky, you have someone else for technician. But I have done productions where I have basically been everything I'm doing right now. My thesis graduation performance on Wednesday coming up super soon. Yep, and I am the octopus. Yeah, I am the artist. I am the technician. I did hire one friend to do a photography documentation. Yeah, but I will be managing the video documentation at the same time. And so it's just it's so hardcore to have to yeah. communicate with venue and do PR and create the work and do the technical aspects and transport and everything to be in so many different yeah, yeah. positions at the same time and it's exhausting at the end of the day like you're Because just you're drained people's job yes you're drained <laughs> and uh i mean I, this is what i did not exactly what you described but uh, a lot of the sort of pr and logistics and admin and creative work in the last the piece before which was about factory workers from the socialist era of um ex-yugoslavia which kosovo belonged to and how 
specifically focusing on the textile uh, industry and textile factory, then interviewing workers from the factory and sort of tracing the trajectory of their futures, depending or kind of, yeah, depending on the political developments in the country. And that was similar format to this one? Yes. With also being an audio piece in headphones? No, that one was not an audio piece. Actually, I was performing myself. But uh, it was participatory in a sense that the audience was sitting in the same level as I was. And I was introducing different props that we found from visiting the abandoned factory. And sort of because it was a textile factory, I was presenting different threads and materials that we found that were completely like ruined. Uh, We went into the ruins and and picked stuff, Mm -hmm. literally stole stuff that no one cares about because they're going to like bring in a bulldozer and like make it like flat and then build some shopping mall because already a part of it is a shopping mall so um yeah i was introducing these this trash from <laughs> artifacts <laughs> artifacts <laughs> exactly yeah. like from from the factory and uh one part is where we found thread and then that thread kind of is like i i invite the audience to hold the thread and we build kind of a net uh, with the audience through the thread and then where th- there's a part where basically I'm speaking about how all this amazing institution collapsed and I have scissors on my pocket and I just go ahead and cut the thread. So it was kind of participatory in that sense but there was a lot of archival material there also and uh, I was very lucky that people just like opened up after a while because maybe I want to talk a bit about this like how does it work to um, build a piece that is so much reliant on uh, oral histories and archives Mm. and the oral histories of living people uh, it's a whole procedure of building trust and explaining as well as possible the genuineness of the intention of the project because people are doubtful like why the hell do you want to tell and this story interview situations are quite intimate yes. and vulnerable yes. and uh, people are very self-aware which yeah. makes them less able to deliver what it is you actually need from them exactly so but but i i mean i have a long history of working with uh, high school students where yeah. i worked as a manager of a high school exchange program and I, without exaggeration, could say that I've interviewed more than maybe 2,000 kids in my life. Maybe, wow. maybe more. But kids are quite cool to Teenagers, work with, right? Yes, yes. But like, just like being introduced to the culture of interviewing, yeah, the philosophy of interviewing. just repeat the yes. format and tweak it. And, and how do you take and... out from what they're given, they give? Yeah. So I had a lot of because that. That is curating as well. Absolutely. And, and, uh, it's, it's sometimes interesting what kind of experiences add into the artistic, ex- like production or creation that are from another field. Yeah. Because we are these like living archives of mm. knowledge and impressions and a taste and, mm. uh, and opinions. And yeah, that. totally. I don't know. We somehow like project that out in different yes. ways. <laughs> Pour it out whenever it's needed. It's genius. So yeah, um, but I think I'm like, I really enjoy this form of work and uh, my actual kind of goal for now is uh, to kind of write or document this in writing and possibly produce like a little booklet or book. Make a publication about it. A publication that kind of uh, 
encompasses this experience and the one in Kosovo because they are similar in methodology, but then they touch upon different areas. Uh, the one that I did in, in my hometown in prison in Kosovo uh, is about factory workers. This one is about uh, yeah, theater workers. workers, but at the core it's about labor. But also your approach has been similar to both yes. projects. Yes. So then like within your research, it's yeah. like iterations of the same yes. uh, interest. And it kind of goes back to um, a research that started during my master's degree in uh, at the theater university mm -hmm. in uh, live art and performing studies which is called modification as a mode of resistance and it continues still i think still this this title kind of resonates very well with what i'm doing and i will trace a little bit why uh, so my kind of artistic research in, in within the live art and performing studies program was related to um, the documentation of my experience from the war, which I experienced when I was 15. Um, so I had brought diaries with me all over the place, like during my travels, the diaries from the day of independence of Kosovo, which is the 13th of June, 1999, unable to read them for 20 years because of the capacity of these texts to... I mean, because they were my texts, so they were so powerful that every time I intended to read them, it was like, no, 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 I'm not going back in that space. Were they traumatizing? Like, did they trigger, or...? Uh, I just, I mean, they. these are from a good day. It's the day of liberation. It's not from, like, the actual sort of uh, experience of, of the war. Uh, but it, it's just, I didn't know how to deal with them. I didn't know, like, uh, how to treat myself from 20 years ago. I, I understand. I appear in a documentary film about um, uh, this house that the anarchist uh, uh, underground movement w was around and I was quite act like this young broad punk uh, was politically active. I, I appear in a documentary film which was like a pretty big production and I haven't mm. seen it yet because yeah, yeah, somehow see? this very secluded part of like of my youth time of being this young activist punk and I don't know it was so intense and I just yeah, yeah I actually have not seen it yet. <laughs> so in order to kind of come to because it was like drawing so much like why would I carry them with with me and then When I started talking about these diaries in the beginning to my colleagues and my teacher, I would like be short of breath and kind of be blush and be really like having a hard time to speak about them. But the more I spoke about them, the easier it became to actually speak about them. And then it became easier to even read them? Yes, but then I had to build certain tools okay. before reading them. And uh, I started kind of playing a little bit with this cut-up technique of William Burroughs and Brian Geisen. Uh, where they used to kind of cut kind of random text like from Dada style. yeah like from from uh, newspapers and reclip them and kind of uh, challenge the whole un understanding of what meaning is and linearity is and so on. So I was thinking, what if I actually do that with this and kind of distance you cut myself? Your original text. Yes. So did you copy them or did you cut the original paper? No, I didn't cut the original. Yeah. Paper. Okay. No, no. But I like I, I was playing with the meaning like of the text, turn them into poetry, turn them just kind of disrupt the linearity of it, and it became like a play. Yeah. It became like a game, 
And the more I was playing with it, the more it was easier to, 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 to deal with them. But the actual reading was done in my partner's studio, uh, which is called the Anachronistic Media Workshop in Nashville. And uh, I read it in front of the camera. For the first time? For the first wow, time. that's cool. And it was horrible. <laughs> For you or the recording? I think the, 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 the experience itself, like, I, there are times when, like, I'm, my, my, my chin is kind of uh, moving, and then there was a moment when I cried, so I needed some break, and then I re went back to reading them. Because, first of all, like, the writing itself, it, it's, it's relatively okay, linguistically speaking. But it's young. But it's like I was 15, <laughs> and then I speak of su with such strong emotions, and with the, there is so much also ideology, tr like, filtered through me. And, like, now I'm distancing and I'm looking at, like, how much influenced I was by my identity, my national identity, and like how to make sense of that, because I don't feel that way 20 years later. So how, what is this? 15-year-olds, they just feel so much and yes. so strong. Yeah, but plus, I mean, 15 is like a very interesting age because I can literally speak about my life before 15, like 15 and later, mm. and 15 and before. Until 15, I grew up in a country where I didn't know how to laugh or how to watch cartoons in my native language because Albanian was prohibited from, from TV, from public TV. So I watched cartoons in Serbian, and I learned Serbian from TV and Cyrillic as well, and like Bugs Bunny was speaking Serbian for me because they were like uh, uh, dubbed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then after 15 is this like oh, opening up to the world and able to travel and able to be socially active and kind of contribute in your community. So it's very clear-cut okay. sort of division yeah. between pre-15. So 15 is a very, very key kind of uh, age in my life. And uh, then sort of through this technique of, of, of cutting and pasting and kind of deconstructing and reconstructing, uh, I actually chose snippets or fragments which in a way reflect um, the positive aspect of surviving through war. What funny, fun things or what were my mechanisms of survival? Like roller skating, like uh, exercising to smack my bitch up of prodigy, like all those things came up. And but at the same time, they're so grim because I'm exercising, smack my bitch up while the military has entered in our house and they're registering us in lists, which later were found as execution lists. So these things happen in parallel. I'm in the second floor exercising. And then there's soldiers who my grandfather and my dad are talking to that are taking our names. One floor down. Yes. And so wow. these uh, became snippets of the experience that I... Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just made a hand movement. To feel <laughs> that I, got, I got excited and I wanted to say something. Um, do you think you will ever write the script for this movie? Um, there is a script that I've started, but like, I don't know, maybe. Maybe, but like the, the, the piece was formed by fragments, which actually happened where you're going to have your thesis, because my... Master's thesis was in Vabantite in Tila. Which is the free art space and um, episode, I think, number the second episode of this whole podcast series with uh, Arvid van der Heid and uh, Juliana Irene Smith uh, is there. So if you want to know about this space, you can listen to that episode. And it's actually a 600 meter square bunker. Yeah, it's huge. 
which was not never used for kind of its purpose built as a bunker, but uh, it was actually it's actually it has to be available for any emergency within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So everything in it is mobile. And I, I'm, I was fascinated by the fact that it's preserved for potential needs for ser- protecting of course, people. Of course. So there's this kind of craziness about it that we're living in peace with the constant expectation that war can happen or an attack can happen or whatever, but which we witnessed just recently with Ukraine. Like, And Finland shares mm. a very, very long distance of uh, land border with Russia. Yes. Like, so this is why the bunkers are kept uh, yeah. up to date is because like this Russian neighbor literally sharing our border and yeah but also i think it's the history like they they have such a bitter history of yeah, uh, yeah for sure of like what happened after the formation of the or the independence of the country like i'm currently reading a book it's just un, un unbelievable or like beyond human reason like how can someone because of certain ideologies kill their family members or friends or whatever because they And this is what happened in ex-Yugoslavia, and this is what happens in every stupid war. It's like just like this focus on dividing and uh, conquering from power structures that dominate and want to dominate and want to conserve or centralize power, and usually using ideology. Using lies on a map yes. and saying, this, this is, is mine. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah. I mean, thinking of that... Uh, just to go to why labor, mm-hmm. this is really closely tied and can functional, this kind of war machinery, can function because of, of, of economy and production and, and, and yeah, basically yeah. labor. And this is kind of what led me to, I think, I mean, I'm making sense of it now because when I was interested to work with, with, work with workers, it came more from kind of this exhaustion of dealing with my own subjectivity. It was like, okay, I've had enough of dealing with this. I was able to tell my snippets in a very funny way and kind of this funny and trauma, like a tragic at the same time. Tragic comedy is also yeah. a classic uh, theater tool. <laughs> Maybe, but I would describe it more like I give you a funny snippet and then I give you a slap in the face mm. a little bit, like because it's so like it, it starts maybe as like oh this is such a positive experience, but then it's like whoa this why did this suddenly become so dark? So maybe this is like the kind of yeah to uh, to a humorous distance to yeah. something heavy. I, yeah, I suppose, but also like, um, I mean, it's interesting when you reflect afterwards. Like, I think I was trying to find um, a ground for recognition and sympathy because I realized empathy is not possible if you don't go through it yourself. Mm. So uh, I was quite angry when I moved to Europe uh, towards the Western world because of the privileges that it had that are kind of uh, not available to me. Like, I still need a visa to go to Europe. From Kosovo? Yes. I thought, but Kosovo is in Europe. It's just yeah, not but it's the not European in, Union. Yeah, but... The, ah, okay, yeah. So maybe, maybe starting 1st of January, it's going to be possible to travel without a visa. Mm-hmm. There is kind of, there have been some, there have been like millions of uh, conditionings that okay. apparently have been fulfilled by the current, luckily, great government, the first good government after the war, mm-hmm. which is a leftist government, and it's kind of started from the student movements. Uh, and resistance and uh, uh, 
I went very deeply into the tangent. What what was I kind of... <laughs> you were angry when moving to the yes. western uh, yes. part of Europe into the European Union? Yes, and, and also like because of having worked with the US and visited often, like I oftentimes would laugh at people's problems in the West. I would be like, are you yeah. kidding me? Are you seriously telling me that this is an issue? People are very entitled. But, but, but also then you realize like if they, this is the only thing that they've been exposed to yeah, yeah. then it's legitimate worry and it's a legitimate issue but yeah. it took me time to realize that yeah yeah i mean people's privileges and entitlement it's like just because you're in a country that is where things are better than in another country it doesn't mean that you should just shut up and never criticize your situation absolutely it's like you can still there can still be things that yeah. maybe should be improved absolutely, or yeah. could be different yeah yeah Yeah, but then, like, when you think of broader scales or, like, when you think of space or the geography of mm-hmm. of the planet in a broader scale, then you realize that, like, outside of your border, there's something really um, different happening. So, mm-hmm. so in that sense. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think I had made it clear, sort of, I, I had found tools to be able to speak about this trauma. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd had enough in a sense and uh, wanted to a bit expand uh, more in the collective orality and collective stories and like specifically stories that are collective but related to um, certain institution where people work together and create together and like what Co-production. happens. production Yes, what, what happens in terms of like who does this where does this labor go, in which direction, and who does it belong to, and so on. And that's an interesting um, mirror to what we talked about before. It is like, are you the octopus mm. artist producer, uh, or are you part of a larger production team? Mm-hmm. Both of them have their own pros and cons, because like, right. if you are the author and the director and the everything, you decide everything, you know? Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you don't have to ask permission, you don't mm-hmm. need to convince any performers to do anything because if you are the performer you decide how it is and you can change your mind really quickly and stuff Mm. whereas if you're in a co-production situation there are more layers and like workarounds um, but of course also it's less lonely it's less lonely and sometimes like I've acknowledged that things move faster in a way Um, but then you have to really be equipped with uh, tools of letting go and killing your darlings and sort of accepting others' ideas and listening, not being so kind of stubborn about, oh, but this is how I've envisioned it because you envision yes, it together. Because we're all artists and yes. we all have really strong ideas of what we like and what we don't like. No, but, but here then you start to kind of like, especially when you work with someone who you really genuinely know hmm. that they mean the best for the project. Yeah then you know that what this person is suggesting is worth listening and 90% of the time worth, worth kind of applying. And, and at least also keeping the peace in the right. production is also valuable. Right. So yeah, you yeah. can remind yourself that when you get stubborn, you can win a lot of legway, I think, yeah. for your own work. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm, I'm pretty flexible in that way. That, For example, uh, I, I did a piece with... Uh, director from Kosovo in what was it 2005 it's called what sprouts first when the earth burns and it's my first sort of work in progress piece or first where I was the writer or of, of the piece 
And um, mm, but I had a director, and the director would kind of come back with comments on my my text. And then you had to adapt and modify your work. Yes. Yeah. So to go back to modification as a mode of resistance, uh, the, the the kind of title came through the research of uh, the artistic research for my thesis project, but basically it comes from my capabilities to bend myself during the war and find ways of survival mentally and physically. Mm. It's how do I modify myself in order to resist and how this flexibility doesn't change me in a bad way or it doesn't kind of, I don't lose things, but I gain things from this because ultimately I'm surviving. Survival of the fittest. Or the adaptable. But that is like to be fit can be... Yeah, to, 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 can to mend, to bend. To be the most fit can also be the one who managed to fit in, you know, or like True. fit to something. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but then also it kind of brings me to uh, my belief that instead of working against the institution, working with the institution, or sort of corrupting the institution from within, or changing it, not necessarily corrupting it, but like I... like. Yeah, if we talk about like more like anarchist ideas or more like this collaborative ideas, I currently stand more with uh, the idea of actually making the change from within and sort of listening a lot the other other side instead of being very con and uh, there there not being a dialogue. Which institution or system is that we are talking about changing now? Uh, I mean. The theater institution. But you said it seemed to be running pretty well. Uh, well, yes, but like uh, there have not been any contemporary performances before, right? Ah, so this is like yeah, shaking up the bag. Yeah, so in a way like, okay. Uh, but this was funded, right? Yes. So, I mean, someone else, they, the the man or person or like the board of something somewhere agrees yeah. that this is a... True. That needs to happen. True. That's true. I mean, uh, I guess it's more like, uh, yeah, the board, but then the funding didn't come from this institution. Ah, uh, no. Okay, but so from someone who then utilized this institution yes. as a venue yes. space. Yeah, but and there is an agreement. There and are. That is agreements. how art production works. You know, right. someone has an idea. Someone has the abilities, and that like someone finds the right space to do it yeah. and someone figures out how to then ha make that happen all of yeah. these things in yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah but anyway um, yeah this kind of um, yeah it, it stays because um, the workers in, in at the textile factory also tried really hard to, to, to change their ways of doing to resist kind of erasure And uh, the workers here are also, uh, in a way, uh, modifying the way that they do things in order for the product of the piece to be like the focus of. Like everyone is working towards something that's everyone bigger has than the themselves. Same goal. Yes. Yeah. And uh, also, I think in terms of methods of working, because that's I, I think I'm going too much into tangents, but like as a method of working. Modification as a mode of resistance is a way of working uh, with changing things when you're working in a collaborative environment. Mm -hmm. And I don't see it as a form of erasure, but I see it as a form of resistance, meaning like of being. 
Yeah, and adaptations are yes. not the same as like uh, if things getting deleted. It's you know, like it's, no. an, it's evolution. It's, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so now you have done like two versions or maybe many versions in your life about this kind of work. So and you said you have like a lot of in, interview uh, experience and stuff. But so what were the specific challenges in mm. this production, seeing as now you're doing it in Finland and you don't speak fluent Finnish, no, right? No. So like, well, not necessarily that it has anything to, to do with language or culture, but in this production, are there some like challenges or like uh, unforeseen problems mm. that you feel like sharing that could be interesting? Well, um, I think the the fact that the performance uh, managed to be realized was kind of overcoming a challenge, uh, which initially was, I mean, it derives from basically wanting to work with the workers as a creative team, and mm -hmm. then and then having to adapt and have them more to be like yeah, but I mean source it, material. My. Uh, the moment that kind of this idea was pretty much rejected, I thought this was the end of the project. I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. I mean, I propose something, people are not saying yes to it, and that means that this project is not going to be realized. But then my curator was like, wait, 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 wait. Like, that doesn't mean that this project is over. That Maybe, it, maybe if you wish, it means that maybe we can find another way to Because do it. Because the idea is good, we just need to reformulate it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then the reformulation actually turned out, I think, to be better because the medium of sound and voice is very much related to labor, invisible labor, and kind of giving voice to mm -hmm. to the stories that are not obviously seen on stage. So Yeah, and I'm curious about this choice because mm -hmm. so you say like first of all the factory project was not an audio project so you you made this choice to turn it into an audio piece mm -hmm. but you chose to also put it in headphones mm -hmm. which is particular you could have also had speakers in the spaces and yeah. so that everyone just listened to it together but this way of doing it created this little bit strange or conceptual experience that us participants or audiences mm. were kind of like deaf and mute together. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. like uh, we are together, but we can't really communicate because everyone has headphones on. Mm. And so we are in the space together, but we're also separated just, or like, yeah. it's a specific way of conveying an audio piece. Yeah. So why? Um, I mean, it, it is a bit, it comes from a space of inspiration, to be honest. Like I was very, um, Um, it's it's sometimes it's hard to describe the why, but then to bodily describe that uh, subconsciously, I've been kind of thinking of doing something that's specifically for headphones, and okay. it derives from an experience of a Rimini Protocol piece that I had in in Berlin. Rimini Protocol works a lot with uh, okay. with sound uh, sound pieces, and uh, that was maybe 2016. But somehow I just kept thinking about it and returning to it and kind of rethinking why was that experience so special of going around Berlin with a group of people and but then having kind of individual headphones on. It becomes very intimate when yes. someone is speaking directly into your ears. Yes. Uh, it's definitely a different way of hearing someone's voice. 
Yeah. I've heard some people talk about podcasts like it feels like they have friends that they're hanging out with mm -hmm. because they get to be in the center of this like close conversation that someone is having. Yeah. And so I think like headphones listening is a little bit like this. It it moves between this like generalized thing yeah. and the intimate experience. I mean somewhere in the in the script um uh in the beginning uh the voice says uh you are becoming a part of a group ex experience yet you are going to be on your own. So the I is turning into a we mm. but you still have a very intimate experience. And you have control also which yes. is another thing that it says in the beginning like Uh, if ever you feel uncomfortable with anything or technically like you can control your own volume but you can also take off your head yeah you can you just know? quit this thing anytime you want like yeah, you're not so obliged I, to I do think that like having individual volume control and yeah. like the opportunity to literally like remove the yeah. sound is also like a particular thing yeah Yeah, and I mean, I have a lot of experience of working in the radio, uh, like since high school, uh, together with a few friends, we established the radio station or like... For, 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 for talking or music or what? No, no, we would like uh, tell, like speak of issues or problems about like school issues. Every Sunday it started with uh, Pink Floyd's uh, Another Brick in the Wall. Uh, so we would be like, we don't need no education. But it was like the radio show of the school where every week we would go and not only play music, but like speak of the issues in the school. And the school allowed it? Or it was Supported it. Wow. Yeah, and like interview worker, like teachers and uh, students, and then play those interviews, like That's with these little wonderful. cassette players, and then play them from the cassette. It was, yeah. So is it, um, was it only inside the school you could hear it, or was it like an It FM? was a public FM. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's really nice. Yeah, yeah, I love, I, and it continued. After I graduated high school, it continued for a few years. But again, this is related to this enthusiasm. Uh, the first year of my high school was in a transformed kind of pub, like a private house mm -hmm. because uh, Albanian learning or teaching Albanian from a high school level and up was prohibited. Mm. So I... So what is it like, let's prohibit education? No, let's just not allow a certain nationality let, that lives here to get educated in their native language. Okay. So, I mean, there was a whole kind of orchestrated way of uh, genocide and kind of ethnic cleansing. Okay. And so which ended yeah. up with people being put on trains and uh, jet, like the mass graves and so on and so on. So it was like a serious hardcore war. So it's not... you, because your parents wanted you to study in Albanian? Yeah. Not were... in Serbian? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then you had to study in a private? Yeah, so... The Albanian Kosovar community mobilized in a way that they created an underground education system for 10 years. Which was illegal? Which was illegal. Sometimes the police would stop us on the way and ask, what are you doing? So no one realized you were not in the normal school? They knew. They knew. Okay. And I mean, there was gas, uh, gas like uh, tear gassing of the schools. There was all kinds, like uh, raiding the schools and kids jumping from the windows, breaking their legs. What? It's like when the police came. To yes, ask, like, What are you doing? Yeah, because like, people studied medicine in this like improvised education. But what they couldn't use the degree for anything because it was. But it was resistance. Yeah, but it was an unofficial degree. But what do you do when you're expelled from like public life? Yeah, no, for sure, it's better than no education. But yeah. it's something like a med degree that you can't like. 
technically go yeah. anywhere with it's expensive. It's so it's, it's, interesting. It's, it's, it's and this like was in the 90s. Yes. Yeah, so quite recently in Europe. Yes, in the middle of Europe, actually, in like the Southeast Europe, which is like literally very close to Italy. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so, so you were studying like this. How big were these schools? Like so, when the police came, how many students were you there? So like 40 maybe per classroom, but they maybe they were like four or five classrooms. We even have a biology lab, lab in, in this, like, wow. but, but the students would stay out and kind of, because we didn't have our official kind of uh, bell mm -hmm. to mark that the class is over. So every day by alphabet, two students would go out and would have this cowbell and ring the bell. <laughs> and sometimes if the students had, like if a friend was supposed to be kind of uh, tested like orally, and you knew that the name of the friend is coming on the list because of the alphabet, like now you would ring the bell a bit earlier and save your friend from being... It was hilarious. Like really, uh, I, I, I think of it very fondly because it's so absurd, but there are so many kind of beautiful experiences from it also. And uh, this was one semester. I, was, I, I went through this only one semester. People have graduated from, from this kind of format of education and then we went to this high school after the war which is a real high school the actual object like the the building where you can study and i was like we're gonna make this magic we're gonna make a radio station we're gonna have a magazine we're gonna kind of uh, plan stuff in our school and we're gonna make this because you came from a background of self-organized energy and initiative yeah. and uh, self-mobilization as you have to do in underground situations always. Yes, yeah. but also it's like, what do you do when you're granted freedom? Like when you suddenly can, can, can go to an, a real high school. Yeah. Like you take advantage of every second of it, like of every opportunity that is given. And uh, I wouldn't change the experience. Like, I know it's horrible to, to go through it, but then it has equipped me as an individual with so much uh, capacity to adjust and yeah. to enjoy so and resourceful. To take advantage of things, like to really be able to see different layers in, 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 in things. But how can it... So, but you survived all this thing. Like, you and your family could have might as well... Yeah. put on a train or to like you say you were literally listed on a death list yeah so um but you survived how how did you, why did you not leave Kosovo because my my grandfathers told my dad that we could leave and we had a summer house in Turkey um and my dad said I'm not leaving without you and my grandfather said well I'm not leaving and then we all stayed and dealt with our fate and uh, so it was like really um, this numbness of not knowing what to do. A lot of people left yeah. willingly. A lot of people went on the trains. A lot of people were killed on the way or whatever. A lot of people left their house and came back and the whole thing was stolen. So there's all kinds of things. Uh, or the houses were burned. And people are making these decisions in like under quite a strong emotional yes. strain and uh, stress levels. Yeah. And so you're not necessarily making... the Best decision. Clearest uh, exactly. decision making either. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was like I, apparently our city was left for the last leg because it's a very very multicultural city. So I grew up okay. with a lot of other ethnicities and with Serbs and like in the neighborhood and with Tur Turks or Turkish community. So um, somehow I think there were a lot of factors that were protecting. So they decided the to take their chances there, that it was more... Yeah, I mean, there are rumors that it was left for the end. Okay. 
And there are rumors that after the, the big celebration of independence that the ones who kind of left the city or could have done something to destroy it said that if we knew that you were so kind of set, had such strong kind of pro-Albanian sentiments, we would have vanished the place earlier. Just like all kinds of stuff that came up after. But uh, I mean, there, there, uh, there were like literally massacres like a few kilometers away from... I mean, I knew that there was a war in Kosovo because, of course, growing up in the 90s in Europe, you knew there was a war in Kosovo. Like, it's... Uh, it's yeah. But um, it's like... But I did not know about this. I did not know about this whole Albanian yeah, yeah. Uh, crazy, like, level of it. And it's, it's, it's all because um, when Yugoslavia collapsed, this kind of artificial... Um, sort of state but socialist state that um, if we speak about like the closeness to the ideology on paper it was the most I like close to how socialism should look should have looked like or felt like in a sense that uh, it enabled all communities to prosper and to grow and to have a relatively okay life, but still there Except were. Except that you were not allowed to study. No, but this was after, like ah, when, it, when it collapsed. Okay, yeah. This was like when the leader of Yugoslavia died. Tito died, okay, and then yeah. the the fight was similar to Finland. Who's going to take the power? Like which nation of this kind of artificial state yeah. of multi nations were being like the nation and religion and ethnicity were not important. It was the socialist ideology that kept us together. And when that guy died, everyone's like, so who's going to take it over? Yeah, and like and you say, how do you uh, actually act when granted freedom? Like, yeah. not just as a person, but also as a country. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a very vibrant place, actually. Uh, I feel a bit uh, bad not being there and contributing right now, although I have done it for a long time. But, like, it's it's very a very good moment for the, for the country because it's... Uh, surpassed its kind of um, war leaders. Uh, most of them are in Hague, uh, trialed for uh, war crimes, because when there's a war, even if you're the one who's like being uh, uh, oppressed or you're not the aggressor who started it, you still do things... Uh, war crimes are war still... Cr war crimes are still war crimes. Yeah. So those people are being trialed and uh, the current government is led by a very intelligent and uh, well-educated and ethical uh, gov like government. Uh, so there's a lot of pro like pro prospects and a lot of progress happening and it's really beautiful to see like some of the friends, like the someone who I grew up with and we were in this cultural organizations together as together the Minister of Culture. Like I, I grew up with, with him and it's it's... I'm overjoyed to see that what what of what he's doing with his cabinet and like what I mean what things are coming out um but yeah I mean it's uh, still a bit of a raw place in a sense that um it needs much more investment and development and and uh yeah But uh, also now you're here and you get to learn about other things and have more influences in your creative toolkit and, yeah. and that is also special and then like Nashua is this whole other yeah. uh, <laughs> fairy tale somewhere yes. else 
Um, do you feel like now with this talk, this was definitely a tangent, but Mm -hmm. Sorry, yeah. No, it's wonderful. <laughs> it was very real. And thank you for sharing some yeah, of yeah. these like, quite heavy things. Um, but is there anything with this production or this conversation that you feel we didn't touch on that you want to mention before we end? Um, well, let's see. I kind of I thought I would. You wrote notes? Think. That's what you were doing in the notebook the whole Yeah. Day? Oh, wow. No, I was thinking like, hmm, this thing I need to go back to, but... Uh, that is so organized. <laughs> I always just wing these conversations and then like in the evening or two days later, I'm like, oh, damn, this thing I would have loved to ask yeah. about. But I don't, I don't write notes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So what is on your list? Like, is there something important uh, we circle back to? No, I think uh, modifying, modification was something that I wanted to talk about, mm -hmm. uh, but then we touched upon that, so I think we covered it, but... Uh, Mm, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. So yeah. maybe it's time to take a sip of water and <laughs> teeny slowly, tiny cup. Or yeah, <laughs> slightly close the Maybe you can uh, water from the. Uh, yeah, no, I'm good. I I yeah. need to pee again. But um, I think it was quite nice. And uh, yeah, I don't really know. I mean. Uh, I saw the performance on Monday and now it's Friday, so it's fairly fresh, but also I'm in this crazy work marathon right now of finishing my thesis work where I am doing all the... Yeah, I'm gonna come and see. Will you come and see? Yeah, yeah, oh, I'll come where I will be the performer and the host and the curator and the PR person and the technician and everything. So my brain is a little bit fried at the moment. I think it's. I think we we yeah. I love a bit like the fluidity that it kind of went into tangents that were not. Uh, but they are exactly what you said earlier. Like we we get influenced by so many things through our life, and then how we pour them out. Like you 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 put it really nicely. Like how then things come out of us is like it influences every aspect, our creative work, and everything influences everything. So, and like I think that's one of the main. <laughs> jobs uh, or like parts of the job as like any kind of artist or creative director or curator anyone who works with facilitating cultural and aesthetic experiences it is being able to take what you have and then like what you would like to have and yeah. somehow just trusting an intuitive way of mm -hmm. presenting all of that to someone who doesn't have it yet or you mm -hmm. know it's like Mm, you're like a like a filter. Yeah, of. exactly. Like mm. a creative process is a lot about like what do I like and what do I not like, and not necessarily knowing how to argue or why, but just trusting that you yeah. are, you know, and you know what to cut and what not to cut, or yeah, or where to end. Also, a big also, question: yeah, like, where do you stop a piece, or like where do you know a sculpture is over? Or it's when is research yeah. comprehensive? Yes. Or and then in that way, it's good if you have someone you can talk to who can help you develop or limit or yeah things organize yeah or someone just like mm -hmm. i just had a meeting with my thesis supervisor the other day they had listened to my almost ready composition and then i it's not like they they are like working with performance and theater and not with sound but they didn't really give me any like critique or comments but they just said it had been such a wonderful listening experience and in a way 
just being like reaffirmed or like mm-hmm. approved that someone yeah. is like giving you the thumbs up on something so short to like when it has to be ready can also be very valuable S- super valuable <laughs> especially when it's close to yeah and you've just been in your own bubble of it so you yeah. don't know like am i just conditioned and like um totally biased from from being with these sounds too much like yeah what is actually happening when someone else is listening to them yeah yeah no that 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 is like I think uh, again the collaborative experience brings this possibility to dialogue with your voice yeah. you know, in a way but and with um, the material that it yeah. becomes this like creative feedback that right. material like is, uh, is transformed a little bit in each direction I mean sometimes someone can say something that is really unrelated to the work but the right question like opens up all the paths for you to <laughs> yeah, or you say a lot of things, and yeah. one thing people stop and say, that was really interesting, and you're like, oh, oh, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back. No, it's it's lovely. Good luck. Yeah, too. thank you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, doing, participating. But um, right before we end, do you have any websites or social media channels or something that you want to share with the listeners where they can find you? Uh, well, find this any of your yeah. projects or uh, maybe, I don't know my, my, my website is kind of under construction it's uh, got, it will be a few months until the uh, so it should so be there is a chance you will so yeah F-J-O-L-L-A H-O-X-H-A Fiola Hoja uh, I would say dot com we will also write a link in the show notes, so yes. where people are listening, they should be able to find a direct link to anything if it exists at the time. But it's good to say it also. This is an impetus for me to finish my website right. by the time yeah. the podcast is ready. This is very nice. <laughs> incentive there. Yes, thank you so much. And we also ask, um, I guess, your collaborators if they have like any links, like for their yeah. own, because like you say, you highlight producer and the curator. The sound uh, designer. Designer. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know to call the sound producer. Yeah, yeah or, here, here is a designer, like, definitely. Sound designer. Yeah. So we will ask them also if they want to That's be linked lovely. and for the theater also. But do you have like your own like Instagram or something that people yeah. can follow you on? Yeah, it's name under like un- underscore slash. Is it slash? No, underscore. Underscore. Hoja. Yes. Name underscore surname. Fiola Hoja. Okay. Cool. I guess that's it. Unless yeah. you have something you want to throw in. No, thanks for for giving me this opportunity to barble about my process and my path. No, it was good. So. I mean, when I'm a bit tired and yeah, distracted, no, then I'm not always so clear on the form and like the guide to guide people. But you have a lot of interview experience and stuff. And you were very good at bringing things back. Also, yeah. I, I, I got a lot of help this time. Lovely, good to hear. <laughs> and thank you to our audience, our listeners. Bye. Bye bye. Tong tong. In Albanian. <laughs>We hope you hold some new knowledge with you. We hope you hold some new feelings with you. We hope you spot the theatre magicians next time you visit a theatre. 
and that instead of breaking it, it magnifies theater magic for you. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it.